you can kind of hear your heart beating because everybody is just so emotional and angry and hysterical. And if you're working for a publication, you know, like, oh, I could get fired very easily. Ethan Strauss is, in my view, one of the most interesting sports writers in America. He writes about sports and how it intersects with culture and sometimes politics. On Substack, he publishes House of Strauss and has a cult following. There's lots of amazing long-form takes there and podcast interviews with an array of figures from sports media. Before that, he was at ESPN and The Athletic, writing about the Golden State Warriors, the dynasty team of the NBA. He's got a reputation for bold takes, many of which have earned him some enemies. For example, he's written about how the NBA's ratings decline might be in part because of politics. In this conversation, we talk about the pressure of conformity in sports media. We talk about why publishing a hot take is kind of like stepping off a high diving board. And we talk about how he feels about being disliked by some of his media peers. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Ethan Strauss. This is working. I don't know why. There's no, no reason it's working now when it wasn't are working ta- before. Are, are you talking about my sub stack or are you talking about this actual <laughs> podcast recording? I'm talking about the specific technical <laughs> aspect of this podcast recording. Yeah. I know why your sub stack's working. Yeah. We can't use this this evening. Well, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what your style is. I don't know if you do cold opens just right into the, the banter. It's your, it's your show. Let's try going straight into the banter. Okay. The, the sub stack is working, I think, because of a, something... Uh, we discussed off camera before, mm. which is the horseshoe. Ah, yes, the horseshoe. Tell me what the horseshoe is in your conception. Okay, well, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have this familiar, uh, familiarity with the horseshoe effect where the most extreme people on both sides will start to sound a lot like each other or there will be this overlap in their political positions, if not their style of rhetoric. And I'm always fascinated when that happens. It's revealing. I like when certain issues uh, present a really good horseshoe. Um, But yeah, I I don't know if what I'm doing is working because it's an alternative to the horseshoe. I just think it's an alternative. And at least in sports media, um, the tone of whatever the reaction is to something, it it's very one note. I think it's one note even more so than political journalism and political media, where at least in that case, you do have these pockets of ideologically defined difference. And uh, you, you certainly have the more conservative media ecosystem. You have uh, kind of a neoconservative, uh, a neoconservative aspect with the commentary podcast that seems kind of centristy, and you know who knows what they are, and then there are libertarians, and so there's just more of a variety. But I think in sports media, when the issues of sport overlap with something cultural or something political, uh, there's a default and there's a consensus, and there seems to be a lot of fear about deviating from it. And obviously, there's been a lot of um, writing about this happening in newsrooms or happening at the New York Times and people being scared of slack. But all of that's true in sports as well. You just don't have as many designated alternative options. And I don't know whatever I'm saying, what it maps onto politically or culturally, but I think a lot of my readers just appreciate that it's something different and something not wholly expected. And there is a wide range 
of political opinions and approaches among my subscriber base. And I really, I really enjoy that. I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to present different opinions in order to get as many people as possible, but I just, I appreciate that there isn't one type of person who uh, responds to it. Can you give me an example of what you mean when you say there tends to emerge a consensus in sports media? It's a great, it's a great question because now I'm thinking about what's the, what's the right example that I can use that won't implicate the people I used to work for or <laughs> a friend in the industry. This is a, a tricky way to walk. It also is, and also is specific to sports. I mean, that's the sports and culture overlap, yeah, right? Yeah. The, the sports and culture, the sports and culture overlap. I felt in the aftermath of Kyrie Irving, uh, the various Kyrie Irving things, the various Kyrie Irving issues. And for people who do not know, Kyrie Irving is a very talented point guard. Beautiful player. Just, Wonderful yeah. to watch. Like knife through butter sort of yes. smoothness. Yeah, just a, a enormously skilled, aesthetically pleasing. Might be batshit crazy as a guy. And he, I, I just find him to be this curious figure because... While I wouldn't endorse whatever process he comes up with to come up with his ideas, he's got a Bartleby the Scrivener aspect to his persona where his refusal to do certain things almost reveals uh, systemic issues or hypocrisies. And you wouldn't want to endorse him as a guy, but you do, or at least I do, see some value in his intrans uh, intransigence. And uh, there's just been a variety of Kyrie Irving issues where everybody knows what the right answer is and what the response has to be. When he didn't want to get the vaccine and it created a problem do you for mean him. you mean everyone in polite polite society or do you mean everyone in, in sports media who's who knows how to look after their jobs well the second part honestly mm -hmm. frankly yeah when players didn't want to get vaccinated and there were quite a few who didn't the dominant media response was basically shut up get the vaccination uh that's what you have to do i mean i got the vaccination it's not where i live i'm not well versed in vaccines. I'm not well versed in what the side effects are. But I do have a sense of, okay, I, I do believe in people having civil liberties. And so if you're going to make people take a medicine, I would like it demonstrated that they absolutely have to do this for the good of society. And I didn't see that demonstrated. And it became clear very quickly that whatever we were doing at the very least was not breaking it was not causing containment of the disease uh, obviously spread was happening it was exploding in new york city around that time um which was the most vaccinated city so just i hey i'm a dumb guy dumb guy science i went okay well it doesn't really seem to be holding the line at least you know maybe there's an argument for it mitigating maybe it's an argument for who knows what but i at that point we at that point knew enough about the disease to understand that if you were a super athlete with a 1% body fat or whatever in your 20s you were not a high risk pop you know you were not in the high risk population you were probably going to be fine and yet the dominant media response in sports media to any player who had any sort of hesitation about it was just no you have to take this shut up take this which was so interesting because a lot of the time, usually the consensus would be that the players have uh, their rights and how dare you make them do this or make them do that 
or demand that they play instead of doing load management or whatever, you know, usually the dominant response Especially would be, when it's the elites yes. sort of lording it over these people who in other contexts are sort of seen as doing labor for the entertainment of the elites. Yeah. Well, there's this whole other, it's, there's this whole other component where a lot of people in media almost project a very um, labor versus management um, interpretation to the players versus the owners. And it's a little bit more complicated. And the labor in this case is making hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> on occasion. And so that's a whole other subject. But usually they're just pumping their fists, pro player, let them do what they want. You're half a racist if you say anything different. And now it was, no, they have to do this. Kyrie should do this. He should shut up and take the vaccine and the dominant that was the dominant media response. There wasn't any real questioning. There wasn't any real skepticism. I mean, I understand certain counter arguments. I have readers who are very pro vaccine and do get annoyed at me when I broach this subject because they have their own arguments for why the player should have taken it or why he should have taken it. But I would at least think that they appreciate that there's some questioning here. Right. And some just not readily accepting whatever the dominant narrative is of what has to happen and Kyrie has been in a few situations like that where you could argue that this is only happening because he's a stubborn person who likes to create drama and that would probably be correct in many instances but at the same time it reveals an inconsistency it reveals that people in charge don't really know what they're doing Um, at a certain point the city of new york could not demonstrate why it was preventing him from playing basketball games when it was allowing him and all these other people to do all these other things and you could be an unvaccinated player visiting against the brooklyn nets which was then his team you could be an unvaccinated player playing the brooklyn nets but you couldn't be on the brooklyn nets unvaccinated playing in that game but you could also attend the game. And it was just this, it got to this crazy level. And yet there was still such a fear. There was still such a reluctance of anybody to raise their hand and go, this seems crazy. This doesn't seem to be helping society. Feel how you want to feel about Kyrie Irving. But the man does have rights. We need to stop this. There just wasn't, there was a, an absence of that. And right. that's just one, that's one example. And if I'm reading you correctly there, Ethan, you're not saying that this alternative viewpoint deserved to win. This is the right alternative viewpoint, but you're saying it should not be shut out of the yeah. conversation. Well, I think it eventually deserved to win, but there was a moment in time where it was unclear what perspective deserved to win. And it at least should have been at the table. It, it should have been part of it. And I think, I think part of the frustration a lot of people are having right now, and I might be taking this in this whole other crazy direction. It's good that we opened on vaccines. It's not at all controversial. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might be less controversial now. I don't know. But I think people feel ill-served by institutions, major institutions. There is this lack of trust. And the major institutions are finding novel ways to hide from criticism. One of the ways I came to Substack was that I, I was – I think the first person in NBA media to notice that the viewership had dropped by half within a decade. And you would think that wouldn't be coded as Some anything. people hate you for pointing this out. They yes. genuinely hate you. <laughs> yes. I've seen them express it on social <laughs> yeah, media. They do. And it, it becomes a conversation about how you're a MAGA guy or a racist if you notice that the institution that is the NBA culturally is scuffling. I think the NBA is going to sign a big TV contract and, and be fine, and they were, they're not going to go broke, but they, they lost half their audience. 
and you know, in a lot of other industries that happens, we ask some questions, you know, if Apple sells suddenly half as many products as it did five years before, it's a fairly big story. But in my industry, you were not supposed to talk about it. You were supposed to serve the interests in a way of the NBA and their constant narrative of ascendance. And if you ran afoul of it, I think like I did, and also just broached the idea that maybe some of these cultural issues were impacting the viewership. It was very taboo. You weren't supposed to talk about it. So what were some of the consequences for talking about it? Well, they especially went in the tank during the hot and heavy summer of 2020, where they made or they had the players wear social justice jerseys to show their commitment to social justice. And you could have your actual name. It eventually became this weird tiered system where the superstars would have their own names because they were a big deal. On their jerseys. Yeah, yeah. But the other guys would have, I don't know how many more or Black Lives Matter, or education reform. And you'd watch education reform dunk over... I, I'm trying to even remember some of the... Over freedom? <laughs> over like, Kansas. Yeah, yeah, over freedom, or listen to us, or or who knows. And, and, and the whole thing about it, too, and this gets back to what we were talking about, how, you know, what's the conformity, what's the consensus? I was finding all of this very hilarious. And you just weren't supposed to laugh at it. But mm. it was very funny to watch guys with these slogans on their jerseys um play basketball and everybody was just very serious because it was you know it was after the summer of 2020 and we're all obsessed with police violence which we would then almost never talk about again for about the next year and a half it was the most important issue nobody apparently knows the statistics nobody ever can tell you uh whether it's going up or down but everybody was performing that it was the most important issue in the universe and everything about the nba especially Black League, obviously, was going to touch on that. But I think a lot of the public, understandably, was watching or not watching because they were looking and they were going, yeah, I kind of just want to watch sports. I I, I don't know. This is all infused with this other stuff that's very heavy. And you don't have to be a Trump person or whatever to perhaps – in the privacy of your own home, look at that entertainment option and go, it's it's quite freighted. It's quite fraught. It's overlapping with these aspects of life that I don't like thinking about. I might change the channel to something that is more of an escape. People do that kind of thing. And I think I, I raised the point that that was perhaps an issue for the NBA. Where did- were you writing at the time? At The Athletic. And additionally, that some of the lecturing that people within the NBA do of the country and do of the public – that I don't think to them seems like it comes off as bad because they, in a way, are playing to Twitter and the response is usually good and you're like a brave truth teller for doing that. But then you look at the messaging and it's often very unappealing. And it's, you know, Greg Popovich, the coach of the Spurs, talking about what a bad country this is or how the people don't have the metal to do whatever. And he's making $12 million a year and he's lecturing you on your white privilege. And I don't know, you seem like you lead a pretty good life that I don't think a lot of other people are leading. And so broaching the idea that perhaps this repelled customers, and this is just, you know, we can say this is just a business assessment. And to be clear, I didn't say this was the only reason. I just said that we're looking at a pie. Something massive has happened in this industry. Monumental. You have lost millions of viewers in a very short amount of time. What the fuck? We need to look. Let's look at it. Let's check it out. I'm in media at that time. I would want more people watching. That's good for me. That means more jobs, more interest. 
Instead, it has fallen off a cliff. Let's look at it. Let's look at the different factors. I didn't say it was just one factor. I didn't say it was just politics. But the combination of even raising the concern and also saying, eh, politics and cultural signaling might be part of that, that, A, I think provoked a response from readers that I found to be kind of encouraging and surprising um, in people subscribing and wanting to read and just wanting to talk about it, but B, just a vitriolically angry response from some other people in the industry of, you know, your MAGA man, Trump, whatever, um, for discussing this stuff. And I think I think that is part of why I made the shift. I, I got a sense of, well, I like talking about this. I like going off script. I see an opportunity here to be able to do that. And it seems like it would be easier to do it on my own than to be within a sports institution where even if I loved my colleagues, which I did, even if I loved my bosses, which I did, you're making trouble for them by talking about this stuff. And it's interesting from a slightly distant perspective, without endorsing one particular view or one particular story or hair or one particular side, I can see on one side you saying maybe it's these things and these are difficult things to consider and say, but maybe we should talk about them. And the other side saying it's definitely these things <laughs> and it's definitely um, this particular interpretation. Oh. And that's a quite – both both of them are controversial stances or both of yeah. them are like have their own elements of radicalness attached. Yeah. But one side doesn't want to let the other side be heard. It's fa- I find I found the whole rhetoric around it fascinating. I mean there was a progression. At first when I brought it up, it's shut up, you're wrong. You know, you're wrong – you're wrong. And then after a while, the data just became impossible to deny. And it was shut up. We we hate you anyway. But we would just prefer not to talk about it. Were you it. hated before this? I mean, I, I run into certain controversies. And I do think I have a bit of a moral Tourette's where if there's something that I think is obvious and nobody else is saying it, then it almost builds up like a like a boil like it just needs to be lanced where it's like, I just want to say the thing that nobody's saying that is obvious to everybody and I need to say it. And so I think that had happened before in more of a strictly basketball capacity. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I just think anybody public facing is kind of hated to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And in my case, some of the people who hated me now like me and some of the people who liked me now hate me. And you kind of just, you can't even keep track of, you can't even keep track of it all. But ultimately, I'm just interested in certain things. And I like talking about what I'm interested in. And if I'm not, then what's what's even the point? And to me, this was an interesting business story, among other things. And the response to what you were saying was, it's almost illogical. It's a strange thing to present. It's a strange idea to say, this country is irredeemably shot through with racism and white supremacy at every level. It's in everything. It's part of the national character. But there's no way it impacts whether people tune in to the NBA when the players are expressing politics of uh, black variety. There's no way. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. The country is irredeemably white supremacist. Uh, It is mainstream. It is part of everything. But the public just loves revolutionary black protest uh, as part of the sports product. That's just, it's just, we, we know both things. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I did this interview with Josh Levine of Slate, and he's a smart guy, but he was asking me about it, and he seemed incredulous that the politics aspect could be part of the viewership drop. And I felt, I do feel like I stumped him 
because I just said, well, why not? There wasn't really much of a response. <laughs> it was just, I, I am operating under the idea that it can't be. The other, my colleagues are operating under the idea that it can't be. Why? Well, I think we know why. It's because we like the activism and we're afraid that if we say the activism results in a financial downside, then maybe they're going to stop doing the activism. So we're just not going to accept that premise. And there's something about that that I find aggravating because if what you're doing is really so moral and what you're doing is really so important, then you should recognize that sacrifices are necessary. And if you're just advancing the idea that what I'm doing is so righteous and moral and worth it and worthwhile, but there's no chance that it can ever have any sort of downside, then what the fuck is that? So where is this consensus coming from? I understand that... Um, Five people on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, so there are lots of people, I'm sure, in the media who are totally with the program uh, on that and um, probably disagree strongly with what you're saying right now because they are believers in, in the alternative. But there are probably some who are like not quite with the program, a little bit like, oh, and maybe even actively against it, but who still don't speak up mm. or still won't say uh, or print something that's contrary to the party line. Why is that happening? Well, I think people like having their jobs and some people do legitimately disagree. But the NBA has got this odd boosterish. I mean, if we're talking specifically and not talking sports overall there's always been a bit of a boosterism there's always been a bit of us looking over at the nfl and wanting to matter more so i think there is this kind of sense that what i was doing is bad because i'm almost speaking it into existence if we just pretend this problem away then it's not gonna be a big problem so it's fealty to the nba that's a yeah, driving force well, and the nba has its own particular dynamics i i am impressed with the thoroughness and the passion of their main PR man, Mike Bass. But yeah, Mike Bass, if he doesn't like what you're saying, is going to give you a call. And he's going to have his counter-argument, and he's going to loudly make that counter-argument. And sometimes that's all it takes. Just like on the football field, people hear footsteps. Maybe they flinch. Maybe they flinch. Maybe they don't go a certain direction. You go, okay, well, if I talk about this, I'm going to get somebody shouting at me. They're human beings, and maybe you want to avoid it. And it's so we we see this in so many respects. I do this. We all do this. We don't take on every hot button issue. We justify and rationalize, often avoiding it in favor of something else that seems more fruitful. So I think there is an aspect of that, and you can always say to yourself in sports too that I can just kind of bury my head in the sports of the sports, and I don't want to criticize people who do that. I think that's a perfectly logical way to go through it. I think that's that's a lot of it. It's just the path of least resistance and people don't want to deal with all the people don't want to deal with all the shit, especially if a lot of their socializing happens on Twitter and it's going to totally toxify that environment even further. I mean, at the time I did what I did, I wasn't participating in Twitter. And so, yeah, it's bad when people are mad at me and I know that colleagues are maybe sniping and everything else, but I'm not participating in the way that some of my colleagues would be participating where you're really going to feel it. So why are you like this? Why do you have to like step into the cultural issues and why do you not just stick to the sports? Well, I think there's the moral Tourette's. I think that's... <laughs> why do you have moral Tourette's? I don't know, but I've always, I've always had it. I have no idea. I think there's some only child stuff, perhaps. You're an only child? Yes. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in San Diego. What are your, what are your parents like? 
My mom is brilliant, just the best read person I've, I've ever known. And she just ended up working in the San Diego public library system. And I, I felt as though, I'm not criticizing her at all, but I always felt like if she had wanted to, she could have done something really big. But that's what made her happy. She liked working with books. She liked, uh, I think she liked her job well enough. And she eventually was running about a quarter of the the public libraries in San Diego before retiring. So I kind of grew up a lot of the time uh, in libraries after closing time, working on my homework or or whatever. Pretty wild. <laughs> Pretty wild stuff. And uh, my father, my parents were divorced, as an aside, but my father was a, a county schools administrator. I don't know much about what he did, frankly. I, I don't know. He was a vice principal at, at, at some point. And yeah, I think... You know, really get me on the therapist couch. It wasn't like a perfect upbringing. I'm I'm happy for what I did have, and I grew up in a very nice neighborhood. I think people get the wrong impression because the neighborhood's reputation is is like a very fancy, rich neighborhood. And I grew up in a regular house, mostly raised by my mom, who was a librarian. Uh, but I got to go to a very good public school, and so that that was nice. But I think that there was, frankly, a lot of loneliness growing up, and I'm not saying that like I had it worse than other people. I didn't lack materially. My parents did care about me. And um, I think my mom did everything she could do. But the fact was, I mean, my, my parents, which I think was a good thing in a way, didn't they didn't date for the most part. And so it was just me at home. And I would come home from school. And it was just me in the house. And I think there is a little bit of a comfort with just having your own mind, having your own opinions, not you, you're just not a, I, I wasn't a mimetic person. There wasn't the opportunity. It really hurt me in some ways. I remember going to the first day of middle school in some red shorts that were just high up above my knees because I didn't know at that point in the 1990s that you weren't supposed to do that and that now was bad and I got made fun of and I was just thinking, man, if I just if I had a sibling, maybe I would have a pipeline and I would know that this is the thing that you uh, this is the thing that you don't do. Hmm. But I think the advantage of it was that it got me comfortable with doing the kind of work that I do now and it, it just gave me a sense of if I'm not seeing whatever I think is going on in my head, I almost don't even, I don't, I don't even know what to do. And it, it, the need was there. So I don't know if what I'm doing is a comfort with a lack of connection or reaching out for a kind of connection, but it, it was, uh, it was definitely formative. And I don't think I would be doing the same thing if I grew up more conventionally. So you don't mind being on the fringes. You don't mind if you're not the most popular guy in school. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, everybody likes to be liked. I like praise like everybody else. I like all that stuff, but I need it to be on my terms. I, I need to feel as though I'm being authentic, and that's when it really feels good. That's when it feels that's when it's at its best, when you feel like like you were really you were really being honest, and not only were you being honest, you were pulling it out of yourself. You knew something was there and you had to work to articulate what was there, and then you see it connect with other people. And that just feels so good. So I think 
yeah, I don't need to be the most popular person. And I have a certain tolerance for people being angry at me. And I do also derive a weird, sick thrill from jumping off the diving board. Like I do feel that there's that feeling before I publish and I know it's going to be, I don't want it to be more controversial than it needs to be. That's number one. I don't want to just court it to court it, but I do like that feeling of, okay, this is going to, some people are going to be mad and I I don't know what's going to happen. And it's funny. I don't, I don't love it altogether, that type of thing, but I do derive some sort of sense of identity and satisfaction from the sense of, I don't like what I'm about to do. I'm scared on the diving board right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. That to me feels good. The entirety of the process and that particular catharsis feels good. Is it the courage, like stepping off the board, knowing that it's going to be scary? Yeah, it's that, I can't remember who said the quote that it's, you know, courage isn't like an absence of fear. It's being fearful and doing it anyway. I mean, who knows? That's, it's a semantic difference. That guy, Alex Honnold, uh, who climbs, uh, what, what do you climb? El, El Cap? Capitan. Yeah. That, guy doesn't, that guy doesn't seem scared at all of what he's doing, even though he could very easily die. I would say that's fairly courageous. <laughs> I wouldn't say that he's a coward because he's got an absence of fear at a chemical level. But I do think that it is a test of character in a way. And I like feeling as though I'm being tested and I'm persevering through the test. And that, I guess, is 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 centering. And it's it's a nice process to go through. I don't like everything that comes with it. But I just like the feeling of, okay... I'm articulating what I want to articulate, um, what I'm thinking, and if it connects with somebody else, then there's something really special about that. And I think there's this resistance um, in writing. We've got a lot of kind of pick meism. We've got a lot of like, please like me, and you see it performed on Twitter. Like, I wrote a thing. You know, it's nobody wants to seem grandiose about what they're doing. Nobody wants to seem like they should be taken seriously. But this is special, man. I mean, I posted a story recently about doing this kind of work, and I... You mean how to... Yeah, is this, is this about how to, like, persevere, even though yeah. this is, like, the worst compensated job and yeah. the, worst, the worst psychological trauma you can anticipate <laughs> or expect yeah. in a career? I, and I'm not going to do... Yes, and I'm not going to do the example I used, Justice, because it's, it's professional comedians, but it's from the documentary Comedian with Jerry Seinfeld. And there's a younger comedian who's trying to make it, and they're almost juxtaposed against each other. Jerry Seinfeld is coming off of Seinfeld, and he's um, trying to get his chops back in these comedy rooms. And it was back before comedians were just doing millions of podcasts. We actually didn't know a lot about them Mm -hmm. like we do now. We know too much about them. We could stand to know less. But back then, we didn't. And they're having a conversation, and the young comedian is is expressing his frustrations to Seinfeld, how he's 29 and how his friends are making money on Wall Street. And don't you ever just, you know, understand that, you know, I could have a sense of normalcy. And I'm just paraphrasing the Seinfeld thing. You can read the, the article, the anecdote he tells. We'll put the video with this post yeah. when we publish it. Yeah. I, I won't get into the whole thing because he tells a great anecdote. But the part that I didn't include in my article, but I keep thinking about is he tells the guy, this isn't about your friends, this right here. And he's in this, they're in this comedy room and he points like, this is a special thing. 
and it just seemed as though the younger comedian was was almost looking at this like a means to an end and how it was a failing as being a means to an end and not just appreciating that this right here uh this is this is a special thing not everybody gets to do this it's frustrating you can become cynical it's annoying to get feedback you know your readers can be pedantic and they could say that you should have said this instead of that and it's easy to get frustrated but it's an enormous privilege to be able to communicate with thousands of people. That's amazing. I'm so lucky to be able to do that. It's ridiculous that I'm able to do that. And so I just want to do it as authentically as I can and feel as though I'm expressing what I want to express. And what is the thing? Because it's not just communicating with thousands of people. It's kind of it's connecting with those thousands of people and, and engaging with them and provoking something. And sometimes it's debate, sometimes it's praise. What is it for you? You know, in a weird way that I, I, I just want to be able to uh, trigger an idea in somebody because I love when people do that for me. And I'm always kind of uh, taking just scraps of concepts that I read somewhere and going, okay, I, I, I like that idea. I want to use that idea in the future right there. And one thing I'm always trying, I think failing at, I'm always trying to make fetch happen and it's never quite working for me. It never does. Like when you ardently try to coin something and crystallize a concept, uh, it never it never quite works. People can feel the intentionality behind it and they're turned off by it. But I'm always trying to do it because I love that kind of thing. I like the idea of, hey, maybe I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but maybe somebody who's really smart reads this thing and goes, oh, yeah, that's a cool concept. And I can apply it to this thing in my life, or it will help me think about this thing in my life. I, I love the Sepier-Whorf hypothesis that giving a name to a concept allows you to uh, conceptualize it better. I think that's that's a very true thing. And so you just feel like by working hard to describe aspects of reality, even if it's silly, even if it's the sports business ecosystem, you're just helping people's perception potentially or helping them find a new pathway. At least that's the hope. You know, you're not you're not necessarily tracking what everybody's getting from the whole thing. You know, sometimes it's just that they enjoy it and that's also good enough. And what do you think about the environment in which you're operating to try to achieve those things? For example, like is this a is this a better time in history than ever to like do that to realize those hopes? Or is it more difficult or is it something else? Yeah, it's confounded because the barrier of entry is so low that it makes it quite difficult to get economic reward. I mean, I'm doing decently, but there used to be more of an industry and you hear this romantic description of it. And you'll hear Andrew Sullivan talk about what the lunches were like back in the day in the in the 1980s. And Tom Wolfe's five-star hotel oh, for yeah. six months while he's working on a one-story in France. Yeah. The low barrier of entry is good as far as pure idea expression, but obviously the downside of that is um, the abundance of people doing it makes it harder to command pay for it and also makes it harder to get heard above the din. I think it's worked out for me quite well. That's a different call than if it's working out for all of us. I don't think so. I kind of think that journalism articles were better before Twitter especially. I mean, a New Yorker pre-Twitter is better than the New Yorker right now. Just not even close. Not even fucking close. And so I think the low barrier of entry and sharing opinions has accelerated a kind of overall decline. 
But at the same time, we can rebuild. It's not inevitable that things will just get worse. And uh, now I feel like I'm doing a plug for your particular establishment that I've benefited from. I think that this is a good way to stake out something going forward to have good content, you know, have idiosyncratic content. Now, how to monetize it, whether eventually uh, these different islands of content get bundled. This is all stuff you probably think about all day, every day that I'm not an expert at, at talking about. What is it about Twitter? You, you've mentioned it multiple times here. You have a kind of distant relationship with it now. It's captured the minds of people like you and me a lot. What you know? What effect do you think it has had on the writer's life and the writer's work? Oh, that's a big question, though, isn't it? Yeah, you want to say it doesn't matter, but it clearly matters. That's the thing. I mean, people really cheered so loud. That's the thing. There'd often be this pushback against the Twitter toxicity, and this is so intra, you know, New York media fights, but I almost felt like there were uh, there were people who they were anti-anti-woke, or I'm trying to even remember what you would even call it, where they just didn't want anybody again raising any questions about what's happening. Similar to what we were discussing with the NBA, where when people would say, hey, this is getting really conformist, this is getting hyperbolic, people are being banished for good faith questions, there was a lot of, well, shut up. You know, you turn into Piggy and Lord of the Flies, somebody hits you over the head with a rock, and... I don't know why the technology accelerated that kind of conformity. I, I don't know. People have thought deeply about it. I know Ben Thompson has thoughts about why Twitter, but it clearly does matter. And I guess, oh yeah, I brought that up because when, when Dave Chappelle said Twitter is not a real place, the crowd cheered like crazy. And to me, it almost revealed, okay, this isn't just an intermedia fight. There is a growing overall frustration with the amount of sway this platform has and how the results are not thought to be good. You're looking at people at a comedy show. They're not necessarily in the media and they're cheering when Dave Chappelle says that. Ironically, though I am heartened by that response, I don't think that's true. It is a real place. It really drives reaction. And I did have the sense pre-Elon that it was almost more of an intentional organizing force. I don't know what goes into it. I just see fewer examples of hysterias. So you think in the Elon Musk era of owning Twitter, the hysteria has weakened? Well, it's just revolved around Elon. So that's, it's moved. Maybe uh, that's it. Maybe that's his strategy. So he'll be the, like the, the gravity for yeah. all uh, hysteria. He's, he's, uh, he's dying for all our sins. I, I think that there is not as much of it. I just it's so effective. It's such a mimetic platform. And especially if you have the capacity to put your thumb on the scale and make certain things more of a concern than other things, it's immense social power. I believe if the people running Twitter wanted to make the populace more right wing and had enough institutional backing to do it, they could do it. They would just emphasize different things. They would make that the current thing instead of, you know, the stuff that was popping pre-Elon. That was a lot of its power. It was this power to send out this signal that this was the most important thing for us to care about. And since we're weird as human beings and we were evolved to deal with uh, observed consequences and go, okay, a lion just ate that guy when he went over there, so I don't want to go over there. We don't really deal in statistics and graphs and charts. We deal with seeing something graphic happen. And so it became this powerful way to disseminate a graphic 
emotion-stoking video often and spreading the sense that this was the thing that we all had to care about at the moment, then switching it out like it never happened for something new, then switching it out, then switching it out, then switching it out, and it was leading the entire media by the nose. I don't think it's as much like that right now. Now it's more of a cacophony. I mean, it's not a great place since Elon Musk bought it, but it doesn't it doesn't have that directional power that it had that inspired as much conformity. How do you resist falling into conspiracy there? Because there will be people who tell you that this is conspiracy theory. You're saying that there is a like a lizard class pulling the strings behind yeah. a platform to direct the populace in a particular direction. How do you know like how, how do you know you're not just falling into one of those traps? On the fifth column I talked about how there had been a shooting in Colorado of a gay club, and that was a thing on Twitter that day, but it had nowhere near the power in my industry. It easily could have, and I didn't even see really any tweets about it. I, I said on the podcast that a lot of journalists listen to Fifth Column, so maybe they were seeing all kinds of tweets. But in my world, it didn't, it didn't cross over into sports world. People weren't tweeting about it. They were just talking about games. It was rather staggering to me, and it just... You, I think you can see it. I think ultimately you don't know what's going on behind the curtain. So you can almost, you just have to make these assessments based on what you see and based on the results. And I don't think it's the same place doing the same things. Would you accept that premise? Is Twitter the same place doing the exact same things as before? I know. I think it's it's changed. But I wonder how much of it is that versus like what the distance from the summer of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, Place, which was a moment in time that Twitter uh, deeply informed mm-hmm. and made people hysterical and illogical. And it's that sense, man, when you log in in one of those times and everybody's kind of, you can kind of hear your heart beating because everybody is just so emotional and angry and hysterical. And if you're working for a publication, you know, like, oh, I could get fired very easily. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a moment where I can easily get fired. And I it won't even need to be the subject. It might just be that I said something that had nothing to do about the subject during the time when we're all supposed to be talking about the subject. You know, the last time I really felt that way, it was probably the verdict for uh, Derek Chauvin it, it, that kind of mm-hmm. had that that juice. Could have gone, could have gone bad. Yeah, but it doesn't it, it doesn't happen as much anymore. And yeah, you could argue that a lot of that was a byproduct of COVID locking people in their houses, so they went crazy. And it's less to do with Twitter being run differently. But I think they put their thumb on the scale. I mean, they gave certain movements. They liked their own hashtag emojis. This was not a value-neutral company. I think we know that by now. I think we've observed enough to know that, hey, and it makes sense. If you have the power to dictate the conversation, it makes sense that if you're somebody who really believes that the conversation should be X, that you're not going to just stand idly by. And we know a lot of that was informed by Trump winning. Trump wins, and then there's all the social pressure that something like this can't happen again. Blood is on your hands. And in fairness to them, I think that the heavy, heavy was the crown. I think they really felt we have way more power than we thought we had. We can change society. We can change political outcomes. And so therefore, perhaps we have to do it in the direction that we think is the most moral. Unfortunately, the educated classes of this country are completely absurd idiots, and they have no idea what's happening in reality, and they believe what they see on fucking television. But 
and that has completely informed their sense of the country's problems. So that's unfortunate, but you can understand the impulse. You can understand that maybe it came from a good place. So what gives you a different feeling about Elon Musk Twitter, given that he's certainly not value neutral? Yeah, I mean, he. I sometimes wonder if some of the stuff in the algorithm getting nudged, the Ouija board is getting nudged a little more rightward on certain topics. And then obviously he... You know, he's often tweeting in a way where I, I never know what his game is because there's a lot of, hey, I'm just this Gen X, you know, political centrist. Republicans and Democrats are both stupid. And then it's, hey, vote Republican in the midterms. And then it's like, hey, I'm going to start retweeting the most uh, reactionary, <laughs> the most reactionary Twitter accounts. And I don't know what his game is. It's possible that he compartmentalizes the way he uses Twitter from what Twitter is doing, and maybe they aren't pushing certain agendas. And from his perspective, he would say that we're just trying to push the reality agenda. But he does he does try to have it both ways in a way where my basic sense of Twitter under Musk is that it's just more chaotic. It's just it doesn't have that organizing feature as much, which which is good. I don't want that. It's really scary. I, I really didn't enjoy that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's just more diffuse now. And you remember a time where writing on the internet was different or oh, writing yeah. on the internet didn't involve Twitter because you came up through blogging and we should talk We should talk a little bit about your background and how you eventually ended up at The Athletic, which eventually led you to uh, Substack. But what was that time like and how is it different from today when you were starting off blogging? It's such a beautiful time, man. Just everybody's so unrestrained, not neurotic, sharing things because it was exciting to know somebody else was reading them, but having no sense that it could be used against you in any capacity and potentially get you fired. It's really hurting the art that people think everything is forever. And only do they think everything is forever, it's reacted to as though time is flat. I had a friend who got in trouble for tweets that he did 10, 11 years ago, and they were joke tweets. They sounded extreme out of context. But that's how it's reacted to. It's reacted to as though the stuff you say when you're a college kid is the stuff that you need to answer for when you're an adult. It, it never – I mean we could have never anticipated that because it's insane. <laughs> it's completely – like why would any of us thought it would go that way? It's so stupid. There's a whole other conversation as to why did that become the premise and why – I guess when on a medium where everything is kind of flattened and everything looks like it's from the same time, so therefore if it's from the past, maybe you feel like it's from the same time. But back then it wasn't it wasn't like that. The internet was a smaller place. Many of the challenges we talk about as far as getting paid to do stuff uh, existed back then. It wasn't a utopia. It wasn't idyllic. Uh, I, I'm sure that uh, people can talk about whatever the flame wars were back then, but it was more innocent. It just was. People weren't as obsessed with how they were being perceived and paranoid and feeling like they were living in a panopticon. They were just trying stuff. And I was at least there for a phase of it in sports blogging where it wasn't even seen as a means to anything. Eventually, I got hired to do freelance by ESPN and I started covering the Warriors as a beat writer, which is the person that follows the team around and writes about them like a traditional newspaper man. This was just before the Golden State Warriors became a dynasty team, right? I I take credit for it happening. You did did some good work there. So anyway, like I got hired to do this thing and I'm covering the Warriors and then some of my colleagues, they get hired to do traditional public facing media jobs and suddenly 
you've got college kids writing to you and going, well, how do I do this? What do I need to do for blogging to get hired to cover the Golden State Warriors? And I'm thinking, dude, none of us even thought this was going to be a thing that led to that thing. That it's, I mean, I'm not saying they're wrong for having that focused ambition, but it wasn't as though it was obvious to us back then that fucking around on the internet would gain an audience and then lead to a normie job in media. And then what ends up happening too is that they're asking to do what you did, but whatever you did doesn't even exist anymore. And so there's no ladder to get to where you to where you got to. And there was certainly no ladder for me to get into it traditionally when I started because the idea is that you cover high school football for the newspaper and then eventually get hired to cover a real team. But that was dying because the newspapers were dying. What was your ladder? I, out of college, took a job. I did that cliche thing out of college where you move to New York City because you've been fooled by the TV programs. <laughs> Maybe you watch Sex in the City and they're always drinking a mimosa outside and it's 70 degrees and it looks rather nice. And then you go to New York City and you realize it's not. It's just kind of a gray, grim place, but buzzing with energy. Uh, my friend, my best friend uh, moved to New York. He was doing improv. I just wanted to find a way to get there, and I heard through a friend of a friend that the NBA hires people to do something called media monitoring, which is a very Orwellian-sounding uh, <laughs> department. And so I applied for the job, and I got the job. It was a remote job back then. I would wake up every day at 3.30 a.m. You, you made the foolish mistake of having a remote job at paying New York rents? Yeah, it was terrible. I, I made 17 grand. Living in Brooklyn. $17,000 a year, yes. to be clear. Yeah, the only reason they could pay me that little is that they kept me like at 39 hours a week. Like if I had to be a little bit over, then suddenly I would be full time and you weren't allowed to pay pay like that. So I would wake up at 3.30 a.m. every day and I would read literally everything on the internet about the NBA, which I could do. Wow. I, yeah. I, you could not do that now. You would. There's too much stuff. But back then, there wasn't too much stuff. I could literally read everything that was written about the NBA, and then I would send an email about it, a memo, to the commissioner of the NBA and other people in the organization that they said this about you, they said that about you, the Mohegan Sun, uh, here's this New York Times article, um, and here are a few blogs you know, are talking about you. And that was my job. And it was, uh, it was terrible. It was terrible. I didn't, I didn't hang out with people. I was seven days a week. Again, you can only get away with this legally if it's technically not full time. How old were you? I was right out of college and, you know, sounding like the young comedian. I'm watching my friends have fun and uh, do cool stuff. And I have no social life because I'm waking up at 3.30 and I can't even stay up late. You know, I tried a couple times. I, I went out, I went drinking and I woke up in the dead of winter in that outdoor uh, Coney Island subway station, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> because because I'd missed my I'd missed my stop and it just kept going. And I really I I hated it. I felt very disconnected. Whatever a lot of people are going through, work from home. That's kind of where I learned. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of what I learned what to do and, and and how to how to deal with it. And I was making dog shit money, as as I think I've revealed. And uh, our apartment was bad. But I, it made me aware of certain things. It made me kind of aware of the world of it. It put this bug in. It put this bug in my ear. I said, I said before that I didn't see blogging as a path, but it, it introduced me to what the path might be, because I was made aware of this job of beat writer. We're like, oh my god, there are these guys, and they go to the games. Sometimes they sit courtside and they get paid to watch basketball. Ooh, man, that seems like a lot better than whatever I'm doing. That seems mm -hmm. way better. 
when I was seeing some of the innovation, Brian Windhorst, who's a great storyteller and he's at ESPN right now, back then he was doing a little video with a giant microphone where he was talking about LeBron James and the Cavs, and it was this content nobody else was really putting out there. And so that was interesting. There was kind of a blog ecosystem that was fertile, uh, the free Darko. It was weird. It was grad schooly. It was It was inventive. And I thought that was cool. And I was getting introduced to that. And so I was getting introduced to these things that would help me later on. And then the last thing I did before quitting, I put in my two weeks, but my last thing that I did, they just needed bodies at the NBA for the NBA draft. And I was to wear a headset and just lead around a draft pick after he was picked by his team on his draft night, the biggest night of his life, and make him go from interview to interview to interview. Now, they didn't tell me the specific guy I was assigned. The way they do it is they give you the number that you're gonna that you're gonna lead around. I can't even remember what the number was. If it was fifth, whatever it was, the expectation was that Ricky Rubio, who at that time didn't really speak English, he was from Spain, was going to go much earlier. And in the positions that he was going to go, I remember that they had two beautiful Spanish speaking women as the options for those slots <laughs> who were gonna lead him around. But he fell and it was shocking, and he was drafted by Minnesota, which he did not want to play for, and there was a real chance that he was just going to stay in Spain because fuck going there, and I had to lead him around. And even though I'm from San Diego, to my great shame, I do not speak Spanish. And I forced that kid to do hours of interviews, and he was he was begging me to to talk to his mom, to talk to his family, and I was just, no, it's my job you, to You had to be the hardest, yeah. cutting this boy off from his family yeah, it, on the most significant day of his life. Yeah, who doesn't speak – he doesn't speak my language. I don't speak his. It's almost made it easier because there wasn't a – he couldn't really cajole me in any kind of way, and I just was like, boy, like, no, there, interview. <laughs> and so it was surreal. And I was sitting in the room with him when he had his first conversation with the Timberwolves, with their ownership, with their GM, and it felt like being on a bad blind date. And because the tradition there is that they go into this ballroom and on a landline phone, they have the first conversation with the team that drafted them. When they were sussing out, I could hear them going, you know, is he going to come over and play for us? You know, are you going to? And he was like, eh. <laughs> and it was just deeply uncomfortable. And so there were so many things that happened that night. I went home that night. I wrote down everything I could remember about the night. And then I just sat on it for a year. I did nothing with it. I moved on. I moved back to the Bay what Area. What made you want to write it all down? It just seemed like the craziest thing I'd ever experienced. It was totally surreal. I'm, I'm not, it's not like now where I've just been within the NBA world in all these different capacities. I was working remotely from home as this college kid. And then suddenly I'm there in Madison Square Garden at draft night. I'm part of the TV show and I'm behind the scenes of the TV show, and something has gone wrong with my assignment, and he doesn't want to be there, and he's young and he's vulnerable, and you can feel you can be jealous of him, but he is miserable in that moment. And whatever it was just seemed like a great a great story. So I wrote down everything about it that night. I left the NBA. I left New York. Um, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. I said, well, you know, I, maybe I can't make it anywhere. I went back to the Bay Area, and I did nothing with it for a year, and then I pitched the free Darko blog, and I don't even know what occurred to me about it, but I reached out to them, and I just said, hey, I've got a story for you guys, you know, because I wasn't working in the NBA anymore. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel protective of it, mm -hmm. 
And the NBA was pissed. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine they would be. So what, what is it? What do you hope you would get out of that? I don't know. It just, I think there was this idea. I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to have a cool story to tell. I love behind the scenes of any subculture. I love learning about where people work, what it's really like. Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, that's that's a great example to me where nobody really knew they wanted to know about chefs like that, but it turned out that they really wanted to know. Hmm. And I just wanted to write something that was a slice of life behind the curtain. And I liked the Free Darko blog, and it just seemed, wow, if I could get this up here, that would be really cool. And they posted it, and it got picked up by... Deadspin of that era. And I don't know if it went viral, viral, but it was the most exposure I had ever had. It was the first time somebody other than my mom and maybe the members of the uh, UC Berkeley women's water polo team, which I covered for a semester, <laughs> you know, read anything that I had done. So it was just really exciting. And what effect did it have on your psychology? I instantly became grandiose and insufferable, as you can see right now. <laughs> I mean, that's, I was a different person before that. And, uh, I'm not but, sure how much, how serious you are. There must have been some, I mean, there must have been some conversion. Um, it was validating. It, it felt okay. I can, I can do something that is going to be interesting to strangers and interesting to strangers at scale. Now, part of it though was, oh man, that was kind of a wonder strike of a story. You're not always in position for that. Um, that doesn't always happen. So how do I repeat the trick? But it it gave me the sense of, oh, I can do something in this space. And it led me to try try to do cool stuff. When I was I was at salon.com, it was a much different place than it is now. I don't even know I don't even know what it is now. Mm-hmm. But I applied to be there as an intern. I worked my way up to being a, a weekend editor and I was just trying to write articles and I was trying to sell them on the idea that I could do sports and, and culture and politics overlap and that this could be a real space for them. And they weren't interested. They had their own stuff going on. I'm not critical of them, but that's where I, I ended up. And I think that the success or just the the Ricky Rubio article being read by people and people liking it and thinking that it was, it was an original thing just kind of opened up the sense of possibility in the sense that, okay, maybe I don't, I don't have to get a, a regular job. Maybe I can do this. And I have to do this on an accelerated timeline, but the blogging led to the the writing for blogs led you to freelancing for ESPN and then becoming a full-time guy at ESPN covering the dynasty era of the Golden State Warriors, which we actually haven't quite left yet. If They, they may win again another championship, but Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, Draymond Green, um, th- three titles in a row, or sorry, three titles in four years and uh, – a, a rivalry with the LeBron James led Cleveland Cavaliers, like an historic moment in yeah. NBA and uh, the trajectory of the NBA. And you were there for it. You were following the team around. You know these players in the locker room with them. What what did it feel like to be at the doorstep of that opportunity or in that opportunity? Oh man, it was so much happening all at once. I think that I look back on with some regret, uh, just because. I think there are readers who even appreciate what I'm writing now who who felt that I was insufferably smug because you're almost this weird reflection of what's going on and this team is the greatest team of its era, maybe the greatest team ever, and they're just sucking all the energy out of the room and they're the show wherever they go. And so it's hard to avoid 
kind of giving off that you feel like you're a great thing, even if you're not the person accomplishing. Because you would have been the subject of envy as well. Everyone would have loved to be the, like the the fly yeah. on the wall of the warriors it's at that time. Funny. Yeah, I do have the story where um I was at a practice and I was there with uh, with Marcus Thompson, my friend, who eventually became my colleague. And a, we're a, just a sport, uh, an, an NBA writer yes. for the Athletic now yes. as well, right? Yes, exactly. And former beat writer, and we're bleary eyed. Because covering an NBA season is it is a grind. I mean, nobody's gonna break out the violin for you. And if you're at a wedding, there are going to be a bunch of dudes who think like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever, but we're just bleary. It's late in the season. Steph Curry is, uh, he's getting his shots up. We don't care. Like we really don't care. Other people, they come in every day and they go, oh my God, oh my God. But we're just like, uh, and Michael Lewis is there that day. The great nonfiction writer, Michael Lewis, he's got this big smile and he turns to us and he goes, you guys have the best job in the world. And then he walks away, and Marcus and I look at each other and go, I kind of think Michael Lewis is the best job in the world. I mean, I'd rather be... I think he actually does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'd rather be, rather be Michael Lewis than us. We get yelled at by seven-footers, by fans. We're taking Southwest flights at 5 a.m. in mid-market towns that are probably more fit for a minor league baseball team than for... Mm-hmm. Uh, in and the then, middle of winter. In the middle of winter, yeah. In the middle of winter... We're going insane. I mean, this is the thing. If you don't experience it, then it's very abstract. But if you're living it, you're living it. Your brain starts getting funny on you, man. I mean, I remember a five games and seven nights. I mean, for people who don't know, the NBA schedule is overstuffed. It's not good for human beings. That's why the players are taking games off. And you're also blasted with all the stimuli because the event is kind of fit for somebody who's going a few times a year. So it's just this mm-hmm. noise and music and everything. Mm. It's not It's not really built for somebody who's just doing it over 100 times. Mm. And I remember there was a five games and seven night stretch where it went LA to Salt Lake City to Memphis to Minneapolis to New Orleans. And you think about just the weather, but also the cultural whiplash where like, I'm in LA and it's a scene at Staples and there's Rihanna. And now I'm in Salt Lake City. This is very different. And now I'm in Memphis. And this is very different from Salt Lake City. And now I'm in Minneapolis. It's very different from Memphis and it's zero degrees. It literally was. I remember it. And then I got on the plane and I went to New Orleans and it was 80 degrees. And you're just going like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you can't even, you're reeling. You start. What's the, what's the reporter, the beat reporter equivalent of an ice bath? <laughs> there is none. And that's why people burn out. So you say like, there must've been so much envy and there was, but the people who covered that team tended to burn out. The people who were there at the beginning, Diamond Wing, he quit. Uh, Rusty Simmons, I think, fell off due to health. I think it just broke him. I was on the media charter plane, and they had to um, they had to ground it during the finals, and just randomly in Denver, and we were on our way to Cleveland. I think due to some of his health issues, and man, the other media members on the plane were not sympathetic to mm-hmm. <laughs> these guys who came came to cover the finals from Italy or wherever. They were just uh, scowling yeah. and sneering as poor Rusty is like writhing and getting pulled out on the stretcher into the ambulance but God. you know but the, i i'm really thankful for the opportunity to have done it because what it taught me is a lot of that behind the curtain stuff i mean that's that's fun i like being a class trader i like sharing with the audience some of the things behind there and it it, it helped one of the running themes of my 
Substack now, which is that the world behind the curtain, the athlete culture is a lot different from the culture of some of the media members who either cover the NBA or like the NBA, and they project onto the players the values that they experienced when they were in their own college dorm rooms that the players do not share. This is a very different world. Are you saying that we shouldn't necessarily look to Kyrie Irving to be our moral leader? <laughs> I mean, Kyrie might have the most overlap <laughs> with, with these people who hate him uh, versus a lot of the other players whose culture might be totally alien to them. And, you know, it's this... They, they couldn't even handle it, I don't think. And you almost have to just accept that this is its this is this world and all its perfections. I didn't come into it looking at it with judgment. I just kind of looked at it as, okay, these are these guys. They've been selected for this reason. This reason is not necessarily connected to social virtue, however we conceive of it. And it's just a highly masculine, uh, masculinized culture, kill or be killed, ruthless. Mm -hmm. You're trying to humiliate the opponent. You're trying to win because you're getting either sent home or you're making hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And that's a certain culture. And it's not like – a lot of other cultures that if you work in white collar work, even if it's hard charging, I know it's competitive in white collar, but let's just say um, whatever humanities majors end up doing, it's just a, it's an alien, it's just an alien world. The people in it are human beings all the same, but they just don't see the world the same way. And a lot of what they think and what they say are things that would get them fired and ostracized instantly in the media world. I can imagine. So at some point, you got laid off by ESPN. Yeah. What happened there? You know, that's something that people still debate about till this day. And that's something I don't know the answer to because... What year are we talking? 2017. It came as a surprise because the Warriors are what they are, as we have said, and they still were what they were. And the playoffs had just started. And so I was the main person covering the Golden State Warriors, which is the main team that ESPN wants to talk about. And... You know, like that was not an expected cut at ESPN. The coverage was that I had gotten laid off. I think there's some reason to believe that I was not laid off, that I was that I was fired. And the backstory on that is that um, Adrian Wojnarowski uh, runs ESPN's NBA coverage. He's the top newsbreaker and has been for some time. And he has many good qualities and certainly worked very hard to get into that position. But he is he is known to have grudges. Uh, he is known to have enemies, and I had certainly written about him when I was back in that world that we talked about, back when we didn't really think anything we were saying was going to be seen by anybody. In the Free Darko days? In the Free Darko days. I think I wrote something quite critical of him in 2010 regarding his coverage of LeBron James' free agency back then. And I know he read it, and I know he was pissed off about it. And he definitely reached out to me in the DMs to make, you know, make it known. Before you joined ESPN? Yeah, years before. I was officially hired full-time at ESPN in 2014. Right. And so it was just pretty curious that he's hired and then I'm instantly fired. And that it was laundered into these other layoffs because they had these big layoffs right around then. But at the same time, I wasn't in the room when they made whatever decision they made. Who knows? Maybe they thought I just didn't have the same spark. They would have been right. I don't think I was as good by 2017 as I was at the beginning of that run. But the timing is a little bit coincidental. The situation is a little peculiar. But ultimately, I don't really care. Whatever happened, 
happened. I like where my life is now. Were you pissed at the time? I was destabilized the day it happened. I remember just feeling kind of woozy. I was downstairs in our in our old bedroom. Downstairs, I'm like insinuating I lived in a mansion. It was a very <laughs> small, like compact apartment sized uh, house in Oakland. Uh, You're going to you know. get canceled on Twitter for having a house with two stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was just, I went down the five flights of stairs in my house <laughs> and then cried myself to sleep. <laughs> but then, and this shows you that maybe you're burnt out and maybe it wasn't working out for you. I woke up the next day after I'd figured out that I'm still getting my money and I'm still getting paid. And I just felt relieved. I was just like, oh my God, thank God. Thank God I don't have to do the same thing because everything was just that team sucks up all the energy and you're just constant vigilance. It sounds silly, but I got yelled at by the news desk when Clay Thompson said his favorite book was Harry Potter and I didn't write a news story. Like, it didn't occur to me that a guy saying that his favorite book was literally the most popular book <laughs> happened to be a news story. But the sense there was this team's hot. Everybody wants to know everything about them. You need to get all the meat off the bone all the time or you're failing us. And mm -hmm. you also need to turn these stories around very quickly. There was accelerated demands that they wanted, game stories within five minutes after the buzzer. So at that point, you're just doing worse work because that's the amount of time you have to do it. And so I never wanted to admit to myself that I had grown to hate it because you're so lucky to have it. And again, I know that I could have been doing all these other jobs that are that are terrible. And I remember graduating when we were talking earlier when I was working for the NBA making 17 grand well after that I quit that job and I found it found it very hard to get work because the um the banking crisis recession hit and so I have all those memories but once I was relieved of the option to do my job I I got to oh my god I really hated it hmm. I really I it was this big burden and then, you know, getting paid, it just took a while to get back to realize what the right spot was going to be. And thank thank God the athletic came along and it was just a synergistic match. And we had a great run. You wrote a book in the meantime about the Kevin Durant years. About the Kevin Durant years. Yeah, about the Kevin Durant years, which I think the book made money, which I'm proud of, because it came out in April of 2020. That's a bit of a suboptimal time. Yeah, yeah for, not, not the best. Yeah, usually you don't want your book to come out during a global pandemic. Usually. Some books did very well. Some books some Twitter did. accounts did very well. Yeah, some Twitter accounts I'm sure did very well. I did not benefit from every bookstore in America being closed. Mm. Uh, that, that did not help me. Uh, but it did make money. And I, I do hope some people revisit it because it is about some issues that aren't about the basketball, which is namely that how sad the players had grown and the superstar players had become all while swimming in social media. So it's not... All while winning championships. All the while winning championships. Um, is the paradox of that is what I became fascinated in, was just how is nobody happy right now? At the beginning of the run, when I was around, everybody was just... It was one big party. But at the end, when they had the same goal, the same mission, arguably a better chance of achieving it, at that point, people just felt sick of it. And it felt like at least the Kevin Durant portion of the story had run out. Sounds like a movie. Mm. You said you got three hours sleep last night. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you only get three hours sleep last night, Ethan? A combination of the baby and also... The baby. Who, who is the baby? <laughs> <laughs> the baby is my youngest son. Um, so You got two kids, right? Yeah, I got two kids. How um, old are they? One's about to turn five and the other is around six months. 
and it's a combination. The two of them work to prevent sleep. Uh, they do they do, they do a good job. <laughs> yeah. But the, the baby's settling down. I mean, I can't totally blame him. I think some of it was also but the just, babies. They haven't really sorted out their shit yet. They're like yeah. they, they they still get into the rhythm of life. They don't understand that you need to sleep. Yeah, I have to give him credit because I think he's usually pretty good about the, these things. The baby is, and he's a very sweet guy. And I'm just so happy now because it was really difficult. It sounds so stupid, but it, it was it was difficult after he was born just because when you run your own site like this, it's all you. And hmm. I hated not being able to do what I felt like I needed to do. For yourself there. Yeah. Yeah. I really – it was – it sounds, you know, like you're wallowing and it sounds bad because you're so happy to have your son – but there's that feeling of just like I, I have one hand tied behind my back and I could be doing this and I could be doing that. You know, the two things that suck, it's either you can't come up with ideas or you can come up with ideas and you just can't execute any of them. And I felt a lot of the latter. And mm. that period of time has stopped. I, the, last night was accepted for its own reasons. Some of it's my fault and it has to do with my own time management. And I was writing an article and that tends to keep me up and get me less sleep. I texted you at 11.55 p.m. last night and you yeah. responded right away. I did. Yeah, I was I was staring at my article and procrastinating. There was too much <laughs> exposition and sometimes I get lazy when there's too much exposition. I, you like the part of the article where you're making points, the part where you're retelling the nuts and bolts. That's always, that's always a little difficult. And so I think around that time I was staring at that point in a complicated story involving a court case with two competing sides and a bunch of people where the end result is a, is a dead person. So you don't want to fuck it up and t- describe it wrong. So that, that portion of it was a slog. And then eventually when you get that part of it done, then you're, you got the wind at your back and you're feeling good and it's more of a creative thing, but it all contributed to, to very little sleep. And the upshot of it all is I didn't even post the article today. I think I'm going to take a look at it later after I take a nap and, you know, try to hone it. Which is the opposite of file the game report within five minutes of the final whistle. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's something the Athletic really capitalized on as a market inefficiency back then. I just think when I joined, it was a very new thing, this whole subscriber model that they came came in with. And suddenly we were just exploring the space that we had never been able to. And it was me, Tim Kawakami, Marcus Thompson, Anthony Slater, the three of them had been in newspapers. And we looked around and we realized that everybody else was having to run around according to deadlines and having their opportunities to get information and stories constrained by that. And we were just hanging out in the locker room of that playoff run in 2018. And we're just relaxing and we're taking our time and we were just getting stuff nobody else was getting. And we were going, this is is incredible. And somehow it all fit together for whatever reason – I have so much respect for Marcus, Tim, and Anthony, but they all do different things and they all do different things from what I do. And it was just magical. And it was magical and it was also informed by like what you're saying that suddenly we had this weird tool where our mandate was only to really come up with stuff that other people didn't have so people would pay for it. And we didn't have to buy by, oh, it's got to get in by midnight, as was the traditional industry standard. So father of young children, one of whom is still learning how to sleep having those contrasting experiences at ESPN on the high metabolism versus uh, the athletic learning that there is actually room in the market when the model changes to take your time over stories, make sure they're good. And now being at Substack where you publish a mix of articles and podcast episodes, 
how do you manage your life? Like how does how do you make sure that you are producing this good thing given the personal challenges of, you know, a young family? I'm still I'm still learning it. And I'm realizing that I have got to think way more ahead of time than I used to. When I was working for people, it was really easy to be myopically focused on the present task. I was given a task and now I execute the task. Write an article on this or I'd come up with an idea for that and then it's okay. Well, this is the thing I'm working on right now. And I'm starting to realize that I'm actually in charge of a kind of mini fiefdom and I've got to look ahead. And it's it's so it's so simple, but... If I start booking my podcast guest uh, the week ahead as opposed to the week arriving and then I'm putting calls in and like, oh, I guess, oh, I guess you don't really have an availability or somebody cancels and I don't have time to pivot, that's been really good. I'm trying to get two podcasts up per week. Who knows? Sometimes things fall through. Sometimes people get cold feet. But uh, just looking ahead has been helpful. You know, I, I still on the writing end, I don't totally have a system. I don't totally have a way to make it a non-insane schedule, but I'm learning. The main thing isn't that I learn what to do. It's just that the conditions of what you need to provide your family and your young children changes, and they slowly get more independent, and they need less. But taking this job has been this job. Giving yourself this job. Giving yourself this whatever, Whatever we want to call this. It's been really good for family life because – when I was at The Athletic, one of the reasons why I wanted to leave is that you've got to really commit to watching a lot of basketball. It doesn't sound like a burden to people who are huge basketball fans, and I get that. But you're, you know, my son was becoming sentient, and you only get so much time with him. The basketball is on in the evening after he comes home from preschool, mm. and you know, am I just going to be, you can't really catch up. If you're not watching when the games are on, you can theoretically wake up the next morning and watch the recorded. You can do that, but you don't really, you know, the, the way to do it is to just be watching and flipping around. And that's how you really know what's going on with the NBA. Am I going to be doing that when he comes home and he's trying to interact with me? And that it, it sounds just so weird, but that was a huge component of it. It was, I think I can make interesting stuff and I think I need to get off this particular hamster wheel to do it. And that has made it a lot easier for me to be a participatory father. And uh, that's that's just been a big factor in it. Now, I need to refine that and hone that and make sure I'm getting more sleep on most nights. But, you know, it's a process. I'm learning. What's different about this style of job uh, compared to the other ones you've had? I think the sense of responsibility the machine only moves if you pedal. There is a sense when I was working for other people that, hey, you know, like I, I want to do good stuff. There's pressure on me. But if maybe I slack this week, uh, it's not going to break the company. Mm-hmm. It, it's not even maybe going to get noticed. If I go on vacation, then that's covered. That's just something that that you can do. You know, paternity leave, similar situation. But when you're running your own business effectively, then it's all on you. And I'm sure people listening who run their own businesses in whatever capacity feel similarly. It's that it's that sense of, oh, okay, this is this is all this is all on me. And um that's that that aspect can feel like a burden, but it's also very cool. It's also very cool to have the sense that you almost have this little this spaceship that just kind of flies around Let's say the machine works if you pedal, you also get to steer it. Whatever stupid mixed metaphor I'm doing. <laughs> I also just have a tremendous amount of freedom. I don't worry about 
how would I say is going to uh, be trouble for me on Slack. I worry that it, about saying something that's smart and correct. Like I said, I don't want to just be controversial to be controversial, but I don't have those worries. A lot of it wasn't that I feared consequences from my employer. Some of it was that I didn't just want to. I didn't want to make trouble for my bosses. I didn't want to. It just seemed like layered and you just it just messy. Like I don't. I don't want that, and I don't have that now. And it's this feeling of I can just go anywhere. I can just talk about anything, and that is a really cool component. And I think it's something, it's almost like burnout protector. It was easier to get burnt out during these stretches when I was covering a basketball team because your job in a way is, is it can be kind of rote and it doesn't, it's not really supposed to deviate from what you're doing. And writers try it sometimes. And I don't think the audience reacts to that great to it. In most instances, it's almost like they pressed E7 for a candy bar <laughs> and like a sardine flopped out and maybe <laughs> they even like sardines, but that's not what they were selecting. And, you know, there's an element of that where sometimes I'll write about something that is less in demand for my readers, but I think it just keeps everything else fresh. And my dumb sports analogy is that you you need to throw a variety of pitches to make all the pitches potent. And so that's part of what's happening here, hopefully, that wouldn't be happening when I was working for people in a very defined role. <laughs> That's awesome. And you're doing a great job with it. And people look to, I think, as an example uh, of someone to follow and who's figuring out, even though you you may not feel like you've figured it out. And it's a a long project, but people look to you as an example of a a writer who's making it on Substack and doing doing interesting stuff. Well, it's very nice of you to say. And can I say that's that's part of also what's fun is that you're not totally figuring it out. I feel like I'm always testing and I don't want my podcast guests to feel this way, but I'm always curious whether the podcast guests I, I have on is going to get a big reaction or not, because I don't even know, I don't even know what space is there to be explored um, and what could be a potential pathway that resonates. And that's the other thing that's fun is that you don't even, yeah, you're always learning and you don't, and you don't know. And as long as you don't know, then it still stays exciting. That's awesome. And other writers on Substack that you read or follow, who, who do you think is worth um, more attention? Oh man. Well, there's certainly, some that I, I follow who I think get quite a bit of attention. I, I like reading Freddie DeBoer. Um, he's just such a great writer beyond everything else. And I, I mean, I think that uh, Jesse and Katie blocked and reported uh, just their chemistry. I'm, I'm jealous of their chemistry to have that 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 two person chemistry and similar this with Jesse Single and Katie Herzog. Yes, and they yeah, have, sorry, a, they sorry, have sorry, a podcast yeah. about internet dramas. Yes, yes. That they they translate it. They translate these arcane, highly emotive struggles um, for the listener. And then uh, fifth column guys, uh, I love their stuff. But somebody who might get more attention, who's adjacent to the fifth column world, I really like Nancy Rommelman's writing, and she will just go at subjects that are sometimes so dark and uh there's real just just pain there and she in her background she she's interviewed serial killers and she's such a great writer and uh somebody with feet firmly planted in the madness that is portland and i just love getting her takes on whatever's going on in that town she lives in new york city but travels to portland a lot and sort of reports as an anthropologist on the madness of the city yes and she does a podcast with sarah heppola who is my old boss at salon 
or one of my bosses, uh, smoke them if you got them, I think is the proper way to say it. And uh, I think people should check out more more of what they do. So that's the recommendation I'll, I'll give. Excellent. And Nancy's Substack is called Make More Pie, I yes, believe. Yes, yeah. yes. She's an amazing baker. She is. I've been a beneficiary of that. Actually. Yeah, she will, send you, she will send you stuff. And it's, it's, it's quite delicious. Yes, that is the, the Substack title. She won't, she won't necessarily send everyone <laughs> baking. So we should, Possible. should be careful what we sign her up for. Oh, well, Ethan, uh, fascinating conversation. It went long because I was so interested in it. Uh, I'm sorry for keeping you here so long, but thanks for giving so much. Uh, happy to have a good conversation. I'm just, I just like to not be the host. <laughs> we can do this again one day. <laughs> Hell yeah. Thank you. You can find Ethan Strauss on Substack at houseofstrauss.substack.com. Strauss is S-T-R-A-U-S-S. houseofstrauss.substack.com. See you next time. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com. Substack.com.